if you want to understand the crazy victimism of the West, here a victim, there a victim, everyone's a victim, 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 everywhere. Everybody's got a victim every day on Twitter, everywhere you go, everything you watch, every movie, it's all about who's the victim and who will stand on the side of the victim and who's the most victimized. The only way you can understand this is to understand this insight about how the gospel functions in society. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart. And I'm Norman Horn. And today we have somebody that I really wanted to get on our podcast for a while, and his name is David Gernoski. He's a writer, speaker, and an entrepreneur. He's founder of A Neighbor's Choice, which is a platform that seeks to introduce Jesus's culture of nonviolence to Christians and the broader public. You can reach his website at aneighborschoice.com. He's a regular contributor to fee.org, and he actually contributes to our website, libertarianchristians.com. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you guys. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. So our topic for today is mimetic theory, and this is something that I was introduced to probably three years ago, and it really intrigued me because there was a lot of insight that complemented what I was learning in economics and in political theory, and nobody seemed to really be talking about it, and I also discovered David uh, writing online and in certain places, and... I was like, wow, this guy This guy knows how to put these two together. And so that's why I was excited to have, have David on the show. So one of the things that I learned in mimetic theory, maybe not all listeners will have this experience, is that as you hear it introduced, maybe for the first time, you might find yourself wondering, how on earth does this connect with Jesus, libertarianism, and so forth? But bear with us, because it really does connect in a, in a truly wonderful way, and in ways you probably don't expect uh, initially, even if you kind of get that sense of, well, I, okay, maybe, let's see how this plays out. So stick with us through the whole episode, because there's a lot here, and I, I, I'm i really excited for us to, to start with this. So, David, let's just start with some basic definitions here. What is mimetic theory? And, well, let's just start with that. What is mimetic theory? Well, it's a throwback to the old days when scholars you know, like Charles Darwin would come up with grand unified theories. And uh, it's uh, basically the work of René Girard. He's a, he passed away a couple years ago now. And uh, he was a, an anthropologist. He is also someone who is a, a teacher of literature. And uh, he was uh, born in France. Uh, but earlier in his life, as uh, a young man, he moved to uh the states and he started teaching um i believe at indiana university if i'm not mistaken um and uh, he was he started his career uh comparing literature and at the time it was very in vogue and it still is to only talk about how the text is a social construct and how it's basically you know you can deconstruct it and take out of the text whatever the reader finds in the the text uh, that references his own sense of uh, worldview, and the same with the author, that there's no uh, objective patterns outside of uh, uh, the text that uh, link it to the, the whole body of uh, literature. And Girard said, no, that's not what I'm seeing here. I'm seeing a, a similar pattern take place in all the great works of literature and even the plays like Shakespeare's work, and, uh, and, and he found a, a pattern that he calls uh, mimetic desire. And that's simply um, something that goes something like this. You have um, all desire is mimetic or it's imitation-based. It's we desire what we perceive our neighbors to be desiring. So if our it could be a, a status that our neighbor has. It could be um, a, a, a place in the workplace that they have that you don't have. It could be the you know the popularity. It could be some object or car or 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 a whole package of objects that our neighbors have. Um, 
there's a whole host of things that we can see our neighbor having and possessing or in the process of, of possessing that we um, we take our cues from that and we say, well, I got to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. So uh, the classic example that you'll see a lot of mimetic theory students uh, use to try to demonstrate, you, you know, the reality of mimetic desire at such a fundamental human level is like with two children, two toddlers in a um, nursery. You could have tons of toys all scattered about. Uh, and sure enough, eventually... Uh, the toddlers, the two toddlers will gravitate towards one toy or, you know, one will pick up one and then the, the other one will try to take the toy from them. And it, it doesn't matter if there's the same exact toy, um, you know, available somewhere else, like two Mickey Mouse toys or something. It doesn't matter at that point. The neighbor, the little toddler sees the model desiring that toy and therefore his desire is inflamed. And when he goes to pull that toy away, Suddenly, the first person who had the toy, he didn't really care about it that much, but now he really wants it more because he says his neighbor is desiring what he desires. And so he escalates his desire, pulls back, and before you know it, uh, they'll hit each other or something if it doesn't get um, deterred. That cycle of mimesis or imitational you know, copycat uh, behavior will start to go out of control. And, you know... Um, to, to complete the picture of mimetic theory here, this little allegory, this little analogy, uh, the uh, sometimes one of the ways that the, the violence might stop is if a little puppy dog comes by or something, and all of a sudden they're distracted and they start pulling and tormenting on the puppy dog's tail or what have you, right? And that's kind of like a third party that acts as a way to kind of uh, channel tensions or... Um, interests or desires onto a, uh, a, a kind of a third party that relieves tension between two people or two rivals. And so that's the, the final piece of mimetic theory, which is as human beings um, desire the same stuff, because things are scarce and because things are um, uh, kind of illusory in the sense that, you know, you think you're keeping up with your neighbor when you get the beautiful sports car he has, but then he goes to something even better than that, and it just seems never-ending. The ways we relieve our tensions and our feuding is by channeling our collective tensions as a community onto a scapegoat, a single victim that we can blame and channel our frustrations out onto, either through casting them out of the community or blaming them or you know, hurting them or, you know, even worse in the old days, killing them, you know? So David, it's, it's ironic to me on some, to some extent that you talk about how students uh, will, will use the example of toddlers wanting a toy because most of the students probably haven't been toddlers in quite a while. Neither do they probably have them, but uh, I know you don't have any kids right now, but Doug and I do. And I think we can both attest as well as any parents out there, how, how utterly true just that microcosm of mimetic uh, inst instantiation and in, in reality happens like that. That is something absolutely that we see now. That what's interesting there is that ha is how that kind of leads to to these violent actions as well. Um, and and you you hinted at that with respect to the the puppy. But what what I what I think starts getting really interesting here is how you begin to see this in history as. Uh, uh, eliciting eliciting all sorts of different um, major violent actions and so on and so forth. I, I want you to kind of get into that a little bit, especially as you know, as Gerard works through the theory and how he kind of um, demonstrates this with a, a variety of different a uh, applications throughout history. Yeah, we see that a lot. Uh, we we see if you look in if you look at history, okay, you'll see at the earliest stages of human. Uh, society, we see a lot of evidence of ritual human sacrifice. We see uh, no matter where you go in the globe, you'll find at some of the earliest stages of, uh, of uh, you know, traces of human civilization popping up in the record, you'll see evidence of human sacrifice. And, and it's also notable, we should, we should point out here, it's notable that that is in the Bible as well. We see that, you know, in, <laughs> we see that early on. <laughs> so it's right, not like... Right. It's unheard of in the, in, in one of the, the scriptures. One of the, and, and here's how you, you know, here's how the direct link to the, the 
the idea of uh, the state pops up very quickly, um, you know, with Cain and Abel, right? Cain um, kills his brother Abel, and then he goes and, and creates the first city, right? And so there's a well, sacrifice. And, 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 and I'm sorry, I keep interrupting, but it's important also to remember, like, well, why did he do that? And, and, it's beca- right. and it had an imitative purpose. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were imitating, and 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 so he vented. It. There was no scapegoat in this case. He scapegoated his rival, which is another form of scapegoating, um, but um, it's where the violence turns into you know you you're the one I'm going to kill. Um, but uh, but yeah, so 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 he he kills his brother, and then and then he says, and right after that, he goes and, and creates the first city, um, and and you see this in the Bible, hints of this. And you see it all over the globe uh, that whenever there was a new city that was being established, they would that you would look at the cornerstone, which would be the, the foundational stone of a fortress or a wall or a grand bridge or a great public works. And in that cornerstone, you would see uh, the bones of human sacrifice, sometimes children sometimes adults, sometimes one person, multiple people, you would see this as something that would pop up everywhere. So, you know, remember Jesus talks about that he is the cornerstone, right? And I think that's an allusion to our, he's not just the son of God, he's also the son of man. And so he's going to give you a picture of the full totality of human history and what it means to be human. And unfortunately, the human history uh, has been marked by this ritual human sacrifice, and it's most evident in these cornerstone rituals where they would hide the body, so to speak, of of the the necessity for bloodshed to be spilled to consecrate uh, the success of a city, of a political order, right? And so you see that everywhere. You also see, even earlier, cannibalism at the root of so many human societies where. Uh, people would devour um, a singular victim, and they would then uh, talk about, well, that was a, a magic, that was a demon, or that was a witch doctor, or that was someone of special magic powers, and we had to devour him to get his powers, right, um, to to attain his essence into our community as a kind of like an antidote so that we wouldn't be cursed by his magic or his tricks. If It's, it's this kind of like anti-venom concept that you'll see pop up in some of the cannibalistic rituals where it's like if we, the, the scapegoat that we've singled out, uh, they don't call it a scapegoat, of course. I'm just kind of explaining it from our perspective. Um, uh, the scapegoat takes on kind of a, a powerful deity-like presence uh, or a monster, and they have to eat him to get some of his poison as like an anti-venom from the poison uh, that he represents, right? And And so... Yeah, I mean, you see this ritual sacrifice, and that, Gerard would say, is rooted in a kind of spontaneous, accidental stumbling onto the effectiveness of scapegoating that early humans found, not consciously looking like, okay, this will will solve our problems, but rather looking and saying, well, it's kind of like just stumbling onto, like an unconscious kind of accidental innovation like any good innovation has been in history almost you know um and and this 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 stumbling upon happens when everybody's pointing fingers at everybody in a community there's a lot of strife uh people are blaming everybody for this or that and the boundaries of self become blurred at that point right and it's like there's a sense of contagion of aggression and violence and blame shifting and at some point, this happens in different ways, but it's the same kind of mechanistic pattern we see. Um, the fingers start pointing towards one direction. And it's usually based on some kind of differential factor, some kind of differentiating feature, like uh, someone who was uh, accused of something taboo, like incest or patricide, like Oedipus, or... Um, uh, accused of you know high theft or magic, trickery, deception, shape shifting. There's all kinds of things that you see, or they you'll notice oftentimes in these mythologies that recount stories of what are actually scapegoat sacrifices. 
uh, you'll see little tell signs that there's disabilities involved, like the gods walk with a limp or the outsider, mysterious outsider that has, you know, shape-shifting powers, has a strange disfigurement, is obsessive, is exceptionally beautiful or exceptionally ugly or too tall, too short, uh, half beast, half goat, half human, whatever. You see a lot of these kind of dehumanizing effects taking place around differential uh, markers. And that usually is, an, is a good occasion for someone to stumble on and say, well, in a sea of everybody being so similar, when they're caught up in groupthink, in collective hive mind, so to speak, um, someone with something disfiguring or someone with some kind of exceptional trait stands out from a sea of sameness. And it's an easy one to say, well, I think it's that guy. You know, let's just put it this way. You know, we're in a tribe and resources are tight. And I think there's a plague because I'm sick and everybody's getting sick. And I think there's someone put a spell on us. And uh, I'm tired of you because I think you look at me with suspicion. And when our tribal meetings around the fire, you're kind of always giving me some negative vibes. And, you know, I think you stole one of my turnips the other day. And then this and then you have problems with somebody else and somebody has. And it's just an atmosphere of aggression. And you can always say, but look at that weird guy over there, that guy with the very thick rim glasses. He's got glasses as thick as a SeaWorld tank. He's got stringy hair. Uh, he walks with a limp. Something's not right about that one. I think he's the witch. I think he caused a plague. I think he's put a spell on us, and that's why we're hating each other so much. So I think he's the problem. And before long that accusation builds up like a snowballing effect and it kind of goes downhill and builds its own momentum and everybody kind of agrees. Yeah, I think that guy is the guy, you know, and it feels good to unite around that guy and say, all right, you're out. And they kill him or they eat him or they throw him off of a cliff. And when they do that, it creates a sense of catharsis. And that's kind of a term, you know, we get from the Greeks for that relief that we have when we watch a play or something that's a drama that gives us, the bad guy is cast off, he's destroyed, and that sense of relief, of tension, that rest, um, that is almost transcendent in how it feels. We know this feeling. No one has escaped this, by the way. Like, if you've seen any movie, you felt the catharsis of scapegoating. You just didn't know what it was, what it was rooted in. So we've all experienced this. This is not some kind of abstract theory. We're just trying to kind of bring it down to earth and try to make sense of what that feeling is, that catharsis release. Um, and that, that cathartic release provides a bond between the people who were once about to kill each other. Now they're unified. And that overwhelming feeling of unity is almost, uh, it's, a, it's an ecstasy. It's a religious feeling. And over time, Girard says, uh, these, these human communities begin to recreate and reenact that original kind of stumbling into scapegoating through out-of-control imitation. They keep doing that, although more consciously this time, and start creating symbolic meaning behind it, and they start a priestly uh, leadership class starts to build up that organizes and maintains a proper, safe recreation of the original uh, you know, scapegoating, and they start to... Um, commemorate that experience as a means of having a, a little dose of sacred violence to stave off the profane violence of chaos that takes place when imitation goes wild without any release release valve or any safety valve, right? So that's kind of where ritual sacrifice comes into uh, a religious pattern that you see in history. And alongside that comes taboo. Like, don't steal. Because stealing, if we just say stealing is okay, everybody's taking turnips and food and things from everybody willy-nilly, there's a sense of undifferentiation, right? How do you decide, define what's me and what's myself and my extension of myself with my property and food and family? If everybody can sleep with everybody else's spouse and everybody can steal from everybody's food, that's a sense of undifferentiation. And that creates mimetic rivalry to the core, right? Because 
as Gerard says, the closer you are to someone, the more likely you are to have rivalry and conflict, right? Um, that kind of frenemy idea that people talk about in popular culture today, yeah. uh, friendly rivals or, you know, uh, bickering brothers, right? The closer you are to one another, the more there is opportunity for fighting. In fact, to the point where early societies uh, would oftentimes uh, kill uh, twins. If there was identical twins that were born, it was considered a, a omen of, of chaos and disorder, a curse on the tribe, and they would kill at least one of the twins as a means of staving off that from being something that would come down the pipeline because of their presence. David, this is a lot to take in, I can imagine, for some people, because there's just like, <laughs> it's just so much to think about and how it all relates. And so maybe we should just like, you know, talk, take it, take it a little bit piece by piece. Um, you know, one of the things that comes to my mind when we talk about all this sacrifice stuff, not just in the myth, the, the mythology of uh, ancient Near East or even just all, all over the world, some of the stuff that you were talking about, is the the sacrifices that we as Christians are more familiar with in the Old Testament. How does this relate to how does this relate to what you're talking about? I mean, we know God says I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, I also know that Gerard says in I See Satan Fall Like Lightning that we need to read the Bible more literarily rather than literally. Uh, that, I don't know if that's his way of putting it, but he he doesn't really take a literal view of everything in the Bible, which I guess nobody really does. But um, So I, I guess the question is, where, where do the sacrifices that we read about in Scripture, you know, it, the account is saying that God, God wants a, wanted Israel to do this. You know that there's you know you have in Leviticus you have the scapegoat ritual where that word scapegoat comes from right and and that just to show you the effect of Christianity that meaning of scapegoat has changed dramatically right now we know scapegoat in our popular use of the word means someone who's innocently blamed for somebody else's problems right well the original word for scapegoat that comes in that uh, Hebrew tradition uh, did not mean innocent um you know de depository of um of 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 one's blames uh in that sense that we see it now as a as a wrongfully accused yeah. uh victim so it sounds so like there's that, the seeds of of something better going to happen later in the story then yeah the, the which gerard, i think we'll get think, to right with jesus yeah gerard is very um pro scripture from old testament to new testament and I don't know if I would say he's totally as like, you know, more literary, but I mean, he, he's got, I mean, he's more, com I think he, I think he takes some of it literal, but he sees it as a picture of what's to come. Right. So in that story with the scapegoat, the high priest would, they would choose a, a smelly he goat because the he goat remember was mischievous and had the tendency to get into trouble and you know, you know how goats look. I mean, they're goofy and bizarre and weird, and I'm sure they thought the same way back then. You know, so some smelly little he goat that's mounting people's sheep and stuff, going crazy, is an easy target to say that little devil of a thing. Let's pour, pour our wrath onto that. And so they would, they would, you know, they would pour their, they would, you know, the high priest would put his hands on this on the scapegoat and and channel all of the sins of the community onto his back and then cast him out to the the um to the wilderness to die so to speak just outside the camp and then they would take another goat and the high priest would bring that into the temple and sacrifice that in the tabernacle as a um as a symbolic representation of his own blood actually he would uh, sprinkle the blood of the goat as if it was his blood as a kind of symbolic representation of God the Father, since he was being the representative of God the Father to the people, showing that God the Father is shedding his blood as an atonement for the people's collective guilt. And so you see a very progressive notion there, as opposed to what's happening in the Aztecs or the Inca traditions, where it's very clear that uh, the animal is being presented as a means of uh, of appeasing a very very angry and capricious uh, deity that demands the blood for his own sense of uh, relief 
in the Bible, even in those early accounts, you see extremely progressive kind of uh, for its time uh, picture of what's going to take place with the arrival of Jesus in history, whereby God is seen as the one who has to shed his blood for the people so they won't tear each other apart, right? And so even in that scapegoat ritual, you see something more, much, much more uh, ahead of its time than the parallel uh, sacrificial rituals taking place in the globe around that time before and after. Yeah, so you see this foreshadowing taking place. And, and a lot of times, if, you, if you've grown up in the church, you've been to Bible classes you know, for all your life, you, you hear about this in, in, our, in our Bible classes. One of the things that I think that's kind of interesting about how uh, the, what mimetic theory kind of brings to the table in our understanding here is it, it, it shows how this stuff didn't just come out of thin air. Um, that there, that there's this, that foreshadowing has a, had a, had a purpose even at the time that 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 so it, it worked within the society in a way that that we don't really just immediately see. Mimetic theory kind of brings that backdrop in to help understand that in a in a in a more comprehensive way, and I find that really fascinating. And I hope that you know our listeners here find that interesting as well. well. Uh, let me put it this way. Scapegoating is as highbrow as you want to make it and violent and vicious and, whoa, this is too much. You can go there with it because it's there. But it's also very ordinary and plain and every day, right? So you have a problem with your friend and you guys are debating and it gets out of hand and now you're getting on each other's nerves. Well, this is a kind of um, primitive form of scapegoating in the sense that uh, you can say, well, you know, it's, the food at this nasty restaurant we picked, you know, they didn't cook. And this is bad food. I think <laughs> yeah. people, right. So that's a form of dif- of diffusing and it's okay. That's well, we, what we yeah, do. We do this all the time. So yeah, you I go mean, to the work, you go to the workplace and uh, it's really stressful and they're going to have to cut and they're laying off staff and, you know, you can, you can sit there and point fingers and that tends to happen within a group or, the community can try to find a way to collectively unify during this tension, right? And say, well, actually, it's because those cheats that we're competing against. You know, you, we all know the story. We know how how they cheat and they bend the rules or, you know, whatever it is, there's always a way to diffuse our collective internal tensions onto a third party. Or sometimes it's just, you know, you're, you have that tension in a group and you're just, you, maybe you're like, you suddenly you all pause and you go, like, yeah, did you guys see the baseball game last night? That was terrible, wasn't it? And, and then you start, you know, you kind of laugh about it and there's your diffusion of tension and kabang, you, you're, you're moving right. on. And then we've all had, you know, as when you're young and immature and we do this even when we're older, but, you know, like uh, two friends that get together, sometimes if they're long friends, longtime friends. Some of the best jokes are based on, you know, a third friend who was the butt of all the, remember that one time when he fell off and it was hilarious and, you know, and it's almost like that's a way of bonding when the breaking the ice, right? And like remembering the stories of that, of the unlucky guy who's not in the, and that we all, we've all done that, you know, because, you know, it helps kind of bring us together. It's like, and that's like a bad habit that we bring along as we do things, but it happens all the time. You don't, your sports team isn't winning. You blame the refs. You, you can't get a good job, you blame the president. Um, you know, uh, your, your, um, your lifestyle seems to not satisfy the desires that you're trying to satisfy, so you blame the religion that you were raised as. You say, that's causing me to have guilt. It's, they, they put that guilt in me. It's not whatever I'm doing, right? So we're always blaming. We're always shame shifting, shifting our shame, shifting our blame onto a common a victim or someone that can't really defend themselves, right? And so what Gerard helps us see is that 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 element is involved in everyday society, everyday life, but it's also involved in the big picture stuff. And one of the points about being a Christian and having a conversion experience is being able to honestly face the fact that you are guilty of scapegoating, that you participate in this, in both the little things and the big things. And both the, you know, wars and rumors of war and uh, economic injustice with what the state does and and those kind of systems, as well as the, uh, you know, gossip or mean meanness or, 
you know, bullying or whatever the little things that come in between that we all do. So Gerard wants us to say, he wants us to come face to face with the idea that the gospel wants us to break through. That's where the, the idea of, you know, taking up your cross kind of relates to is the idea that, you know, you have to sacrifice. People talk about privilege a lot. How about scapegoating privilege? That's a big problem, right? We all want to say, well, the left, look at all the things the left is doing if we're on the right. To scapegoat this or that or this person or that person, look how ridiculous that looks. But then we don't really want to turn the mirror on us uh, or even libertarians, right? I've, I've said this to libertarian groups because I don't want to leave anybody in the, in the easy seat. We all need to be in the hot seat with this. Anytime we're dealing with applying Jesus to society and, and so forth and ethics, we should all be left in the hot seat. And so, you know, I always talk, talk to libertarian groups about, you know, we scapegoat too. We scapegoat the state as if the state is somehow just some kind of alien other entity that's invaded our peaceable little libertarian lives. And, you know, if they just let us smart little libertarians um, with our exceptional ideas and our exceptional self-restraint or something, we'd just be just fine and dandy. We wouldn't have any lust for power or domination or exploitation of someone or even aggression to the point of violence, if necessary. Now you're just picking fights with us, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad you don't leave anybody in the easy seat because we all are guilty. And I think we would individually recognize that. Oh, yeah, I'm not perfect. You know, I, I contribute to the problem as well. Um, but we really don't evaluate what exactly we are contributing. But it seems like mimetic theory and Gerard have, have something to say about how we participate in the crowd of yeah. uh, violence you might want to talk more about the because the crowd is actually a concept that's more than just you know some some word that we use every day about multiple people right well the crowd it takes on a life of its own and so when when you have the idea of like jesus saying you know or the idea that we are the body of jesus on earth right that sense that a collective could be act as if act as one mind that's really tapping into this insight that that Gerard's trying to help us see, which is that humans left in their natural state, we always want to form groups. And that's okay. It's not inherently bad to form collective bodies, uh, but we have to be extremely careful of the crowd mind that kind of possesses our mind uh, when we get into those situations because they can easily uh, trigger into really bad behavior, like blaming others that for our, all of our problems, isolating and, and um, you know, kind of singling out a certain enemy other tribe or, or maintaining the peace of a, of a crowd by routinely picking someone who's not speaking the way we all like to speak or using our proper language or our proper theological buzzwords or whatever little thing that we form a little clique or tribe or church or anything around. Um, we kind of rich, ritually cleanse our body of tensions by, you know, singling out a misfit or a, a rebellious person and, and, and casting them out and then finding a little bit of peace and relief that that, that guy who was a, that guy was a jerk. He's out of here. I'm glad, you know, we all feel united again. So that, that kind of crowd mentality happens all the time. And, but the problem, it becomes a problem oftentimes is when you use violence, right? So uh, the, the story with the woman caught in adultery is a great example of that because you have Jesus um, getting the, the crowd to, to deal with the issue as if each one of them has a responsibility for the violence that they're going to participate in because he gets them to ask the question to themselves, who's going to cast the first stone? And so as long as there's a crowd of 45 people, uh, it becomes very hard to tell, well, you know, I wasn't really responsible for that person's death because, you know, I just threw a rock and everybody was doing it. And I was just kind of caught up in the crowd frenzy. And it was just another day in the park, uh, taking care of business as usual. But when you have to say, well, well, who's going to, who's it going to be? Is it going to be me or Bob first? Who's, who's the guy that's going to throw this rock? Now all of a sudden you're trying to, you're personalizing what you're about to do. And it's a lot harder to do when you have to actually take accountability for the violence that you participate in a group. And I apply that insight that Gerard points out that's there in the scripture. I just simply apply that to voting and jury duty. And so I say that if you're voting, um, I don't care if there's 60 million other people that vote for that person, you hire that person to do what you want, or the, well, they say they're going to keep, I'm going to keep this law in place, and I'm going to keep this law in place, and I'm going to add this law, and 
and uh, so on. And you're like, okay, well, you're better than the other guy, so I'm going to hire you. And then they do violence. That That's a way that we diffuse our responsibility in continuing the cycle of scapegoating violence by the state when we try to hide in the anonymity of the voting booth and the anonymity of the large uh, political rally. Um, and, and we do that in the jury too, right? We go to the jury box and it's designed to kind of create that situation uh, where the jury, there's 12 members and the 13th person, of course, is the person on trial being accused. And um, you have the defender there and the defender, you know, the, the Greek word for Holy Spirit is paraclete, which is kind of like another way of saying the defense, the defender. So you have your defense there protecting the victim, which Jesus said he would send us with the Holy Spirit. So that's modeled in the courtroom, Western courtroom, which is influenced by Christianity, by the way. So this is not by accident. I'm not reading into this. And then you have the state, you have the prosecutor, and that prosecutor means, you know, like accuser. And the accuser uh, is, that's what the word Satan means. Uh, the, the root word for Satan means the accuser. So you have the, the accuser represented there, and then you have the judge representing kind of like a God figure that's the you know overseer of justice. And then you have the crowd there, the 12 peers. And in the court of law today, it's kind of popularly thought that you're just supposed to just see the evidence and you just, you just go with the crowd of guilty or not guilty based on the evidence. And there's no sense of the fact that, well, if you're a member of a jury and there's someone there for a nonviolent behavior, let's say they were selling raw milk or they were greedy, they were being rebellious, they were being a little bit too loving of money and they were doing some kind of economic violation with their business. Maybe they didn't pay the minimum wage like they should have and they were found guilty of that and they refused to comply or they were there for a drug offense. Any nonviolent behavior and you're sitting there as a group and you have to say to yourself, well, Actually, I have more responsibility for what I'm about to do. I don't have to say guilty. In fact, our founders created a system where you could actually judge the moral character of the law through the jury system and say not guilty because the, the law was uh, immoral law. And so every person in a jury is faced with the question that Christ confronts every one of us if we read the text honestly and let it pierce our hearts, which is who will cast the first stone? And, I, and I, what I say is, well, who, who will grab that man on trial? or that woman on trial, and lead them in shackles to their cage. Will you do it? Or will this other person do it? Who will, who will guide them and lock them in the cage and hear that steel door shut, bam, steel against steel? Will you be there to make sure he doesn't resist? Will you be there to make sure he can't escape if he tries to escape over the barbed wire? Will you be there as he, has to, he or she has to navigate uh, social environments which are completely dehumanizing and um, tribalistic and violent and uh, antisocial, whereby you have to almost pick a, a, a group to protect yourself, lest you become an easy target for violence even more so? Are we going to be the person that says, I'm sorry, you can't get out of this cage if someone violent is attacking that nonviolent person? So we absolve ourselves of all of this, right? Because we don't want to face to Christ. Christ would not allow us out of that, that, that uh, recognition if we would allow him to, to basically um, deal with the idols of our heart that allow us to uh, compartmentalize our participation in voting and jury duty, which results in actual violent treatment of human beings that we would never do in our own situation. If we were on an island stuck together and somebody had a bag of marijuana and they were enjoying that, right, in their own little tree house down the, the island, you know, we would never think about the idea, well, well, uh, you know, I'm a Christian and, you know, he's going to be reckless with that. So uh, I don't want to deal with someone who's high. I mean, you know, God forbid this person starts acting goofy or weird or lazy or sleeps all day and doesn't help me build my uh, raft off this island. So I'm going to preemptively use violence and go up to his little tree house and, and I'm going to barge into the, into the area. And if he doesn't um, uh, surrender immediately, I'm going to use physical force to restrain him and uh, put my knee on the back of his neck and, and, you know, tase him if I have that available or whatever, you know, just whatever it takes. And I'm going to kidnap him and I'm going to put him in a little cage until I feel like he's paid 
for his crime, right? We would never do that ourselves, most of us, right? We don't have that in us to treat someone like that because we know that the gospel is not something done by coercion. So if you understand the nature of gospel, that it's not something that happens coercively, that those who live by the sword die by the sword, but those who live in Christ are raised in Christ, right? If you die with Christ, you were raised in Christ. That contrast is so stark and we need to see it penetrate the political systems that we so carelessly um, acquiesce to because of indifference or apathy or ignorance or whatever. And so we got to look at that for what it is. And Gerard helps us see that. And Gerard, by the way, was not a political theorist. So I'm not putting words in his mouth, you know, like he was out there to, to, to make a case for what I believe about political ethics. But I think he gives enough of a case. He was working in another area. You know, as an academic, he was focused on anthropology and sociology and more, other questions. And so it's up to people who come and read him to say, hey, that fits with the patterns of what I already see taking place. And you provide a necessary, a very critical and timely piece to the puzzle that gives me a more accurate guide of where Christ wants us to go as individuals and as a nation. David, I'm, I, I want you to as well kind of let's back up a little bit too and get back to, um, to, to what, what happens in Jesus's life, death, burial, resurrection that kind of exposes the mimetic process in its full, in its entirety, and how that also affects society down the line. Because I know that there's there's something there, and it's because it, it's very it's so unlike anything else in the history of the world. It's it's entirely unique. And what does that affect that uh, that that sort of Gerard points out, and that we can learn from there? I call it. One of the ways that you can say it is it's the tech, it's the technology of the gospel. The gospel story, in its own way, has its own has a technological feature in the sense that it helps us see that which we could not see before encountering it. And so, with this, uh, the the story of when you were Norman, you were talking about the uh, the, uh, the the passion of Christ. That is a, what that does is kind of like an unveiling of what takes place in all mythology leading up to that event, but it does it in reverse. So in mythology, every story is written by the victors of history. Uh, and so uh, the collective that banishes out the scapegoat, um, it writes off the, um, the scapegoating, not as brutal violence and unjust persecution and blaming, but usually as this monster had it coming to him and, hey, look, even in our own recounting of the story, the monster confesses that, yes, I was the cause of all the problems. Um, we see this in the story of Oedipus Rex, right, where Oedipus says, yeah, I'm the cause of all the, of, of the city's problems. I, I take full responsibility for all the accusations you've leveled at me. And, and so he banishes, he's banished. He accepts his fate. Well, that's written by the victors that want people to understand that the logic, the logos, right, the logos, which is the divine social ordering principle of the pagan world order across the globe, was one where the collective rules, based on the blood of, 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 the, of the losers, of the victims, and we don't, the victim doesn't have a voice. The victim is, his voice or her voice is written by the victors, and that voice is one of either uh, lying, defamation of the victim, or uh, just just dehumanizing them to the point where they become um, an easy monster. And so what happens with the story uh, in the gospel narratives is that Jesus comes in and the, and the gospel stories, um, they're, they're growing up humanity because in this story, it's very clear that Jesus is wrongfully persecuted, that he actually takes on the same pattern that the um, oftentimes a victim before being ritually sacrificed by a community would be dressed in kingly garb and paraded around the uh, community as a kind of mock, uh, you know, your grandeur before being uh, sacrificed to the gods. Well, in this case, Jesus is mocked as a king, right? They put on a purple robe. They give him a crown of thorns. Uh, he's passed between different political figures. He's uh, disrespected by 
uh, his own people and his own community, as well as those who are the occupying forces. So uh, it's clear in the text that the, the crowd is the real mover of the violence and that the leaders are almost helpless before the crowd, that the crowd is really the ultimate power over whether scapegoats are murdered or not. And it's not some, uh, you know, there's no deity that's active in the text saying, and you shall die. In fact, you know, the only time we see kind of like a pronouncement of, uh, you know, the intentions, like Caiaphas says, you know, the high priest, he says, it's better that one man die than that the whole nation perishes. And so he's kind of revealing the the pagan logic of the, the old pagan logos of the divine ordering principle is that might makes right, that power and exploitation must be enforced with a strict hierarchy of victims, uh, and the pyramid is ruled at the top by people who could they be themselves victims if they don't appease the crowd, right? The crowd. Well, and that's something that even Pilate talks about. I mean, you're kind of alluding to that, right? Is he, he says, like, he says, well, in order to appease the crowd, he handed over Jesus to right. them. They are the real rulers in that situation, and it shows how fickle the crowd is because some of those same people may have been, you know, the ones praising Hosanna as, he, as Jesus was writing in just shortly before that. And so you see the crowd whims moving, just like Julius Caesar. Remember the Shakespeare play where one minute they're cheering for him, the next minute they want to cheer for his rival, and, and they, that wishy-washy crowd behavior that can turn on a dime's notice is there in the text. You also see a passage in Luke where it talks about how uh, it says specifically that uh, Herod and Pilate were reconciled. They had had been enemies, and then the the whole process of dealing with Jesus as a scapegoat, brought them together, actually, and they became friends through the process. So there, there's the there's the way that the world makes friends, revealed to you by God himself. He's revealing to the, to the humans who have eyes to see, ears to hear, that this is the way the world makes friends. And, and there's even, you know, a passage in Acts, I believe it is, when, when the apostles are preaching, to the people, and, and and Peter, I believe it's the one who says, you know, you killed him. He doesn't talk about it in terms of, oh, well, you know, there are these soldiers over here uh, that they, the, the, the soldiers that actually, you know, the, especially the one that drove the nails in and to his hands and his feet and they, the ones that lifted up the cross. But no, he, he doesn't just merely toss the blame onto them, but rather says, you killed him. And again, kind of revealing that, you know, the, the, who's really responsible for, for, uh, for, for, for killing the Christ at that point. And, and that soldier, you know, the, the Roman soldier, he's the one, he's kind of like a police figure, right? Carrying out oh, the totally. violence. Of the, and he says, my God, that's the son of God, right? So yeah. he, he's the one that sees the apocalyptic unveiling of who is really, where does God lie? So see, before that, God, uh, the, the divine order was, was manifested in the crowd's will, and, and the losers were cast out or eaten by the crowd, so to speak, as a way of appeasing the divinity of the crowd's unity, that divine transcendent oneness, one nation under God, indivisible, indivisible. We cannot be divided so long as we're united under one God, and God in the text is revealing that that God is actually a false God. It's the God of the crowd. It's the God of the mob. We call it the God of demos today. It's democracy. Or the God of democracy, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So that God is revealed right there in the text. It's completely political. It's not only political, but it's completely, it's, it's, it's bigger than political. But that political is, is all the way through that text. That's why Jesus says to Peter, uh, when Peter says, hey, don't, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, you know, let it not be said that you're going to die. Okay. Don't do, that's not what you're here for. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He says, get behind me. You accuser. You're a stumbling block to me. You're a scandal to me. And what he's saying there is you're trying to accuse me of the things that you want to do. You want to William Wallace, you know, that the Romans are persecuting us unjustly. You know, that the religious leaders are unfairly, twisting the law and they're taking advantage of their fellow countrymen um, and you're not happy with it and you know people are sick and you know people need food and what you're trying to do is bottle all the all that energy up and storm the castle 
and make me your William Wallace, right? And and I'm not going to do it. You want the things of man. I have the things of God in mind. And the things of God in mind are to not respond to violence, not to respond to the violence of Roman persecution and Jewish uh, leadership that was gone awry with violence or domination schemes as revenge, but to uh, reveal it by bearing their own uh, evil on, and, and allowing it to collapse in on its own weight, its own silliness, its own absurdity. And that's the power of the gospel. That's why I call it a technology, because the writers of the gospel texts are they're capturing this knowledge, which has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And it's slowly being revealed through the entire biblical narrative. And it culminates in this, uh, this cataclysmic, climactic satire on human originating violence of human religion and humans attempt to have friendship and bonds and unity over a lie, over a lie. The lie is that Jesus was guilty, that he deserved to die for the nation uh, to live. And, and then the murder, which is that Jesus uh, would be killed outside of the city, not in the heart of the crowd, but outside the heart, but outside the city's walls, in the trash heap, in the hill of ugliness and, and ill repute, uh, Golgotha, the, the, hill of the, the, city, the hill of the skull. This is the trash can of this, of this community. This is where the vultures are flying over. This is like going out to your trash dump in your local city. You see the vultures or bu- you know, the buzzards and everything flying over, and it's smelly, and it's grotesque. And, and, the, and God is saying that's where God is. God is, is a wrongfully accused scapegoat, bleeding, naked, and abandoned on a trash hill outside of the city. That is where logos, that's where the divine ordering principle, which rules the world, really resides, right? And when that happens, like you were saying, Norman, that changes history. It changes everything about how societies are going to work out that salvation with fear and trembling and resistance and, you know, and stubbornness. That's all mixed in there. And we've been going through this for 2,000 something years since. But you're right. And, and let me point out something here that's very, if you really want to see uh, one of the most powerful pieces that I like about mimetic theory is the idea that there's a case, there's, you know, there's almost an apologetic case for the divinity of God, of Jesus here. Because in every uh, successful scapegoating, there is a false dying and rising account. And the dying takes place, of course, when the victim is killed by the community. And then as mythology unfolds, remember, this is oral tradition that's taking place over many generations. And oral tradition, by the way, whenever you're dealing with oral cultures, the story is never told the same way. It's always told in a different way. And, but it's always the same basic formula, but a little bit different each time it goes about. There's no rote memorization in an oral society. So the earliest stages of human culture, you have these oral traditions of, well, this is why we had to kill, and this is why we had to kill that misfit, and so forth. And over time, it becomes calcified into mythology. And mythology has that dying and rising savior motif all throughout world mythology. We see it over and over again. But in those stories, those are successful scapegoating um, uh, mechanisms taking place. Those are successful sacrifices uh, in the sense that the crowd is able to write the history completely for the victim. Um, and, and, the, and the victim sometimes becomes not just the demon, but also quasi good, right? Because after, after it's told over and over again, it becomes mem- remembered as a community as, well, actually, that person that we thought was a demon, actually, he was a god because he brought us together. And that's actually, that's, that's Zeus or that's Thor, you know, and that Thor is the God of, of the heavens and whatnot. And so they, they, they project their victims. They, they hide the body so well, they hide their own guilt and their own, the own banality of just killing someone like they do. They hide that by projecting that into the sky as some God. Well, it was actually a God that we killed because we were, you know, that's the only way they can explain why they were all. Uh, reconciled so well together to the point where they staved off um, 
genocide or you know self-destruction uh, within their own community. This, this guy brought us together in a way that brought us such ecstatic oneness. You know, you feel that same way when you go to the national anthem and everybody gets goosebumps and reverence that that said, oh, you know, don't challenge that, right? That same thing is there. And so it's mythologized as this dying and rising motif, right? But guess, but guess what? With the gospel story, we have a historical, gritty, realistic portrayal of someone being wrongfully killed as a scapegoat. And then three days later, he resurrects. And now we have the historical reality of, of, the, of the imitation that was taking place in mythology up to that point. And here's how we know it's the real deal. Because it doesn't create unity. It doesn't create unity. The resurrection of Jesus creates division. It does not create a, a, a unified crowd as we're going to write the story so that Jesus, we were all mad at him one day because he, he had broken a taboo and we all walked towards him off of a cliff and he flew off into the sky, never to be seen again. And every now and then, when we remember that season, when we confronted Jesus for the taboo that we found him guilty of, he comes down and he brings forth a bounty of, of crops or so forth where we saw him last fly off the sky. Well, that would be a successful scapegoating, murder. But with when you do that to God, he breaks the machine. He breaks the little lie because he's innocent. He's purely, truly innocent. And he has the power over death and life. And so you can't, he's, he's not going to allow you to get away with that. He unveils it through his perfect surrender to our violent schemes. He destroys it. And, and, and so therefore the tribe is not unified by the death of Jesus. It's fractionalized. And suddenly there's this community that starts emerging very quickly of early Christians, the way, uh, and they're, they're dissenting from the way of their community because they're saying, I've seen Jesus is resurrected. I've seen the true Jesus. I've seen Jesus truly in flesh. And I, I, and so there's that, that sacred union is divided. Do you think this is the phenomenon Jesus might've been referring to when he said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword? Yeah. Cause I don't think he was speaking literally there. Cause he was nonviolent as we all know. Right. Yeah. He's, he's saying, you know, the way you guys have community, where you, you have a, a hierarchical pattern of exclusion, where whoever gets to sit at the table at this seat is the better, and then it goes down from there, right? That's all going out the door. Because the last shall be first, the first shall be last. And, and, and it's the idea that I'm coming to bring a sword. I'm going to cut through this false unity, this false friendship that's founded on the ritual, sacrifice, and exclusion and lying accusation of a singular victim or a group or a, or a minority interest or what have you, whether it's the king who's a billionaire, so to speak, or the lowest leper, that's not happening anymore in my kingdom. It's not happening. You're going to be exposed to it. And that's why he says it's finished, right? Because up until that point in history, the process of harmonization was not complete. But on the cross, it's complete. Because the lie of the cornerstone, the lie of the cornerstone is revealed in the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone and the capstone. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first sacrifice in Cain and Abel with Abel's blood, and I'm the last sacrifice. I'm the last sacrifice you'll ever be able to lie yourselves out of. You, this is the completion of the harmonization. This is the completion of humanity's uh, kind of childhood pattern where whereby they're you know other passages say that god winked at our ignorance you know in that sense that there's this period that humans still needed to grow up to a certain extent before they could start to be able to handle the meat of revelation that's what paul alludes to that that the the logic of the logic of sacrifice was baby food and he was ready to give his people the meat of the gospel revelation which is like a nuclear bomb that blows open the, the empty lie of the logic of pagan sacrificial order and turns, its on, turn it, turns it on its head. And so ever since then, 
this is why it's so important. I know we're going all over the place, but this is so important for people. If you want to understand the crazy victimism of the West, here a victim, there a victim, everyone's a victim, 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 everywhere. Everybody's got a victim every day on Twitter, everywhere you go, everything you watch, every movie, it's all about who's the victim and who will stand on the side of the victim and who's the most victimized. The only way you can understand this is to understand this insight about how the gospel functions in society, that it erodes, not as a quick break, but as a slow, because humans are slow and they're stubborn to let go of their old pagan way of of using domination and violence to bring their unity and their community together. So they're slow to let go of that old practice of, of, of Satan. And, and But if you want to understand why the West is so haunted by this victimism, the only way you can understand it is the gospel. And the best guide I can point to to understand this function of the gospel is the work of Rene Girard. Wow, David, that is... <laughs> It's heavy stuff. It is heavy stuff. And, I mean, we've been talking for about an hour now, and I've got a litany of questions here that we're going to have to delay. So those of you who are very tired on your ellipticals, uh, don't worry. We're going to wrap this up. Um, The, you know, I have questions ranging from, you know, things about atonement theory and democracy and anti-Semitism and individual autonomy and, and... But... I guess to boil it down, what is my libertarians and especially libertarian Christians who are committed to the gospel? They where, where are they going to keep reading about this? You know, they can read Rene Girard. Is there is there something they should start with? Is there an introductory book that you know sort of introduces mimetic theory before they actually jump into Girard? Now just give me give us some of your um, maybe some closing thoughts and then some you know further further reading and resources and then also tell our listeners how can they reach out to you if they have any questions or just you know to learn more about you yeah well i encourage everyone to check out my website a neighborschoice.com that's a neighborschoice.com or go to our facebook cha- our facebook page is a neighbor's choice look up a neighbor's choice and like us on there and follow the posts that go on there I also have a nice body of work at libertarianchristians.com um, that you that I use this theory to analyze all kinds of things taking place in um, current history and ancient history and everything betwixt and between, so to speak. You can go to fee.org, and I have they have a nice catalog of some articles that I've used uh, to teach nonviolence for Christians and the broader public. And I'm telling you, this is the thing that can bring everybody together because. I don't. I think we have to just focus on the radical nonviolence of of Jesus. It's not pacifism. Radical nonviolence, in my explanation, and what I see in the scripture is non-aggression plus non-vengeance. That means there is a place for self-defense for protecting the vulnerable and the weak, but. That means you're actually protecting them from actual physical violence. Someone's trying to harm them. You have a right to restrain that attacker to protect victims. That's perfectly Christian. That's beautifully Christian if, if done and with, with restraint and not, you know, vengeance. But, but vengeance has no place. Retaliation to get back at someone has no place and certainly not aggression. It has no place in the Christian life. And that needs to be understood now more than ever because our society is screaming for leadership and the church should be providing it. And they shouldn't be hiding within their walls and saying, well, that's something for the politicians to figure out. No, they need to be the voice, the maturity, because right now they're fighting over flags and this is the way it's actually happening. It looks like those are your only choices. Do we blame this guy or do we blame this group? Do we blame this or that? But if you pick the camera up, what the Christian should be is the church should be the adult that comes into the room behind the two people. And suddenly we see some perspective. We see that those are two toddlers because we see that the knees of the adult that's just walked into the room are parallel with the toddler's heads. And suddenly we see the left and right is silly. Suddenly we see that's vestiges of the old pagan order still trying to creep up in more and more creative ways. But when Christians 
teach nonviolence and live it and embody it in a contagiously uh, bold way that makes others want to imitate us in the culture. Now we're the adult in the room. And we shouldn't do that in a haughty and, and you know arrogant way, but we should do that as literally the adult in the room of our civilization that pulls us towards the death and resurrection of Christ. So that's where I would say people should really take this extremely to heart. Study the book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning by Rene Girard. Look into, there's a series, it's a very good series. On It's available on YouTube or I think CBC Radio. It's a five-part interview series with Rene Girard. Uh, and it's very good. It's with David Cayley with CBC Radio. And it goes through the entire sweep of his theory. Um, and it really brings it home for the Christian to understand what this is going on in the world of, uh, of today. But once you read this, it's like a red pill. You're going to see that you don't have to glue your libertarian impulses in some kind of, you know, kind of convoluted way to your Christian theology. It's one. It's totally one. And and that impulse you have, it don't just you're going to be encouraged to speak ever so boldly. And 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 it won't be so much about my rights when you see the kind of mimetic approach, which is important. We do have rights. It'll be more about how do we treat our neighbor, right? Once we see our neighbor, we'll 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 throw down that stone and we won't just hide in the crowd. Well, David, this might be one of the most re-listened to episodes because there's just so much in what you're saying that I I know that is important to grasp. And it's one of those things where, you know, you just re- you really want to get it. And I want to thank you for joining us on our podcast and for your major contribution to LCI uh, through the work of your of your writings. I mean, we also post the things that you put out on fee when we post things on our Facebook group. So thanks again for, for being on, and, and I'm sure we'll have you back. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed our discussion. Well, that's another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us and submit a question or uh, give us some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and, of course, our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.